Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Steve and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Steve. This is the fourth episode ever of the Field Guides. What we're going to try to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. Each episode we pick a nature topic, we head out to a natural spot, and share with you everything we found out about that topic. Bill, why don't you tell us where we are and what we're talking about today. Alright, so today we are at Tift Nature Preserve which is right on the outskirts of the city of Buffalo. So we are at an urban nature area. And uh, this is a former uh, industrial site that uh, was turned into a nature preserve. So it's got some wetland. Uh, it's got some, what would you call it, second growth forest? Uh, maybe, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. It's, it's all cottonwood, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, invasive species here. But, stinging nettle and cottonwood. <laughs> that's that's what this place is. It is on and the edge of <laughs> it is on the edge of Lake Erie, so there uh, it's a good spot for birding. So I know a lot of birders in the Buffalo area come here, check out birds, mm -hmm. and that is why we are here today. So mm -hmm. we are looking for birds because today on this chilly December morning here in Buffalo, we've actually been having a crazy uh, warm uh, and dry late fall. So normally we would have snow cover, uh, it'd be colder, but right now we just have a, here we just have a dusting of snow. Oh yeah, the first time Buffalo even got snow was two days ago, two yesterday? Days ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have uh, a brown landscape around us here. Yeah, and... December 20th, brown <laughs> landscape. Yeah. Holy cow. So it's kind of odd, but uh, we're here to see birds and we are here to talk about how birds make it through the winter. So survival strategies of winter resident birds. I want to start with a joke, uh, kind of a stupid joke. Is that okay? No, uh, I mean, let's just move on. And then... <laughs> Fine. All right. Joke? And it starts off with uh, two elderly vultures. Uh, they're thinking about migrating and they decide, you know what, we're too old, we're too tired. Let's just take a plane instead. So they go to the airport and they're walking on the plane and each one has a raccoon under their arm and uh, a dead raccoon. And the flight attendant says, hey, do, do you want me to check those for you? And they say, no, no, they're carry-on. It's like we, a dad joke. And you have to leave that in. <laughs> I'll leave it in. I'm you not going to cut, cut this one. Out. All right, but let's talk about migration. Right. So many of our uh, birds will migrate. In my research, I found one good line that said, birds migrate to escape adversity. Bad weather, no food, and they're trying to exploit resources somewhere else. But migrating is incredibly risky. What percentage of birds who migrate make the trip to their wintering grounds and the trip back? How many of them make that successfully? What percentage? I'm thinking 60%. Well, for years, I don't know. Just reading about birds and uh, talking to other people about birds, the, the figure of about half kept coming up. Most people think about half die uh, sometime during migration, either on the way down, on their wintering grounds, or the way back. So for this episode, I kind of looked into it. And I was surprised to find that I was correct. So one study in 06 in the Journal of Ornithology, they looked at local breeding populations. They would measure them before departure, and then they'd measure populations when they return. And they measured a variety of species, but anywhere between 30 and 90% uh, did not make it back. Woohoo! Oh. So, so I wasn't off when I said... No. Yeah. Now that's a big spread, <laughs> yeah. 30 to 90%. But as I said, they looked at a variety of species. So I, I looked right. a little further, and a study last year that was just looking at raptors, they found mortality during migration periods was six times higher oh. um, than during non-migrating periods. That's interesting. So migration is very risky. Some birds do it. Some birds decide, no, we're going to stay put. Now, one thing that well, I Well, just to be clear, no what? bird is deciding anything. This is true. This is true. <laughs> Not to anthropomorphize anything we don't want that to animals are doing. <laughs> No, it is. I mean, it's just easy to say, easy to understand. But, but didn't you yeah. find in your research that birds that historically migrated, depending on food availability, will stay instead, where they won't migrate as far? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that came up in the research a number of times, and that was uh, phenotypic flexibility. Oh, okay. And, and, and specifically, it was... Sounds um, reversible phenotypic characteristics. So it was something that maybe develops in certain times of the year due to environmental cues um, but that, you know, that end up 
going back as soon as the weather, you know, or the conditions change again. Ooh, oh, what ooh. do we have? Mockingbirds. Ah. All right, so we Mimis are walking. polyglotos, I believe. Now you're showing off, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was talking with an ornithologist, and they're like, we don't use the scientific names because everyone knows <laughs> the common names of birds. So Where like, was yeah, that, Yeah, the taxonomy is interesting. It was out west. Really? Yeah. Okay, because it just seems to me like here in the northeast, we're more prone to use common names Whereas if you go to other parts of the world, well... But this is specifically with birds. Yeah. Because the, the plant people I was talking to, they're like, oh no, scientific names. Scientific names are the way to go. Yep. All what right. is that? Uh, all right, so we just see another bird flitting around. Mm -hmm. uh, no, yeah. I lost him. You know, something that I think is interesting, and this isn't something I read anywhere, but it's just something that I've sort of come across just by, you know, birding for so many years. If you have a, a field guide, yeah. right? There's sections of the map, because every bird has their range map. There's sections where they're there during the summer, they're there during the winter, and then there's areas that they're there year-round. Right. And so just because you live in an area where a bird is, uh, you know, present year-round, doesn't mean that the bird's not migrating. Right. A lot of people say, oh, the robin is the first bird of spring. Right. But here in western New York, and I'd say through a lot of New York State, there's a lot of robins that stick around, or there are robins that... Uh, will migrate from further north to our area. Right. So they're short-distance migrants. Mm -hmm. And in my research, there are some other species I came across that are short-distance migrants are blue jays, hermit thrushes. Mm -hmm. They may only migrate a few hundred kilometers. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they're still migrating, but it's much shorter distances. Yeah. So uh, the other distinction I found is there are continental migrants. So birds like eastern bluebird. Mm -hmm. So some may stick around. Some may just migrate short distances, but some will migrate to, say, uh, northern Mexico. Mm -hmm. So they won't go all the way down into South America or into Central America. Those would be considered the neotropical migrants, like the warblers. Yeah, a really popular group of birds, the warblers. Well, it, in the spring, I, I, I bet we're going to cover something about oh, them. Oh, definitely, definitely. One thing I was thinking about when I was driving here today is, as I was going over my notes... I shouldn't have been doing it while I was driving, but I was. <laughs> when I started in natural history, I was not interested in birds. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but uh, when you started learning about natural history, you were a plant guy. You well, know? you know, I actually started with trees. Okay. Both oh, that's right. Matt and I, we bought our first tree field guides together. We bought the Autobahn guides, and we were trying to identify a tree in a parking lot, and it was not working. Let's go this way. Maybe we could see a, a shorebird. Hey, we do. We have two mallards. I'm looking through my binoculars. See that? Where? To, to the right of that group that's swimming? I, I can't tell. I can't see anything from here. Are they grebes or something? Let's go around and look. Let's try to get a closer look. I can't Let see me use my here. binoculars. Right. So let's see. All right. But while you're taking them out, the point I was trying to make before Steve interrupted me is that we're going to mention birds like warblers, but there's a lot of people out there, hopefully people that are listening to the podcast, that have never seen warblers or taken the time to look at them because warblers don't come to feeders. Now, Steve's looking through the binoculars right now. Not a mallard. Shoot. Is it a gadwall? Yeah, but I can't. It's too far away. I can't tell what it is. Oh, I... If I had a guide... All right, so uh, Steve's taking out his field guide to uh, test his bird knowledge. The point uh, I was making before about warblers, though, is uh, we may be mentioning birds that you're not aware of, of you've never, or that, that you've never seen, but there are a lot of birds out there that never come to feeders. And I think some people are a little bit daunted. I know I was daunted. Uh, by the sheer number of species that are out there, but don't be. There's, I think birds are uh, a great topic to get into because you can see them so readily. And, and birds like these neotropical migrants, like the yellow warblers that go all the way down to Colombia or Venezuela, uh, these are birds that have these incredible stories, uh, incredible things to know about them. And you can see them on a daily basis during certain times of the year. I mean, when we go out on our spring birdathon in May, the yellow warblers here at Tift are so numerous that we're like, oh, oh you know, yeah. it's just another yellow warbler, which... What, what was our birdathon last year? How many uh, species? Oh, gosh. We had over... A, yeah, I think we broke 100. Mm -hmm. Because for a number of years, we were trying to break 100, but over the past couple of years, we have. So over 100 right. species. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we are top-notch birders. Oh, no. Well, so, I'm not. <laughs> Bill's better than me, and, yeah. and a few of our friends that we go out with are better than both of us, I'm yeah. sure. But. And it's it's taking me a long time to, to work up to what I know, and um, I still, when I go out with some hardcore birders or just watch what pe things people are posting and talking about, I'm like, oof, man, these people have no life. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> our birder friends just turned the podcast off. I say that out of jealousy. Yeah. Really. Yeah. More than anything. <laughs> All right. So what did you find? What uh, What do you think it is? 
So we're looking at a, a bird that is similar in size to a, a mallard, mm-hmm. right? If we think if it's the gadwall, it's similar in size to the mallard. Yeah, a little bit smaller, but it's it's still nearly the same. Do you want to move and try to get a closer look at this? Yeah, I, I'd prefer that. All right. Yeah, I, I think uh, they're gone. Yeah, whatever I've seen before, I think maybe flew off while we uh, took our eyes off the pond. We have mallards and we have Canada geese. That's pretty much it. Bill, do you have anything on how birds handle water so well? Because at least with people, you could even get hyperthermia just swimming in the summer if the water's like 70 degrees, but these birds are handling it just fine. Sure. And I'm sure their legs make them lose a lot of heat. Ah, should we talk about circulation? If Yeah, why don't we jump right into circulation? Right, so, I don't really have much on it, so this is going to be you. So the birds that stick around, uh, first we're going to talk about the physical adaptations they have. The first one is something that's going on all the time, and that's their the way their uh, circulation is set up, especially in their feet. So first thing you're going to want to know or realize about bird feet is they're scaly. So uh, that thick scaly skin, which is less susceptible to freezing, uh, it contains fine webs of blood vessels. And their feet are mostly composed of tendons, ligaments, and bone, uh, not like ours, which have more muscle, nerves, and blood. So they don't need to keep their feet as warm as we do. Their feet can handle going down to temperatures just above freezing because the proximity of the veins and the arteries. Now, I had to talk to uh, my wife, Linda, about this because she's involved in the, the medical field. And I said, okay, arteries and veins. What do arteries do? Arteries carry blood away from the heart yeah. and veins carry blood back towards the heart. Okay, right. So one article I was looking at said that uh, the veins and arteries in their legs create a countercurrent heat exchange. Whoa. Uh, so you can think of the artery uh, taking blood down the leg toward the feet and then the veins are bringing it back up towards the heart. So what happens is as the blood leaves the body, uh, goes down into the foot, and then it comes back up the veins, the warmer blood that's leaving the body warms the blood as it goes back into the body. Oh, so there's, okay. a, there's a transfer of heat there. Uh, now, it's, it's not a huge change in temperature going down. So I found one study that said they looked at pheasants. And as the blood was leaving their body, it was uh, about 37 degrees Celsius. That's almost 100 degrees Mm -hmm. uh, in Fahrenheit. When it dropped just two centimeters down into the leg, below where there were muscles and feathers, it dropped down to 10 degrees Celsius. So it was a huge drop, almost 30 degrees, really. And then when it got to the toe, it was actually just above freezing, about 36 degrees. But then as it traveled back up the leg, it warmed back up. Birds will stand on one foot. They'll bring feet and legs up close to their body um, to warm them up if they do get too cold. So uh, in extreme temperatures, if uh, their circulatory system and their feet is not doing the job, then they'll bring a foot up and really warm it up, and then Mm -hmm. they'll switch feet to do that. But I don't know about you, I had a hard time finding any recent studies on bird circulation. You know what? I didn't find something that's specifically on circulation, though it's pretty closely tied to it okay um so it was in the journal of experimental biology in 2014 i like that journal i used it last episode right right there was a study in dark-eyed juncos in south dakota and they wanted to know what are the drivers of these seasonal phenotypes so this is where they talk about reversible phenotypic flexibility and you know what for for people out there what's a phenotype because some people may not know it's a change on the outside so um, a genotype would be a change in the genetics, and then the phenotype is the way that's expressed. So a phenotype would be, let's say, red hair, or a phenotype might be gregarious behaviors. And you can have different phenotypes within a species. Right, and you could even have different phenotypes in the same individual under different environmental conditions. Uh, so this is what they mean by this reversible phenotypic flexibility okay so during different parts of the year that phenotype is going to sort of stretch to fit whatever you know the bird needs it to fit what they did was they looked at photo period and they looked at temperature and again they were working with dark-eyed juncos junco hyamalis hyamalis means of winter so they're the uh, junco i think that's named for juncus though that's not clear in the etymology but so it would be um, juncus is a rush if, if you guys don't know so it'd be the uh winter rush bird which i think is weird but i love juncos so i mean how many did we see the other day 96 or something oh yeah when we did a a christmas bird count yesterday yeah yeah it was a lot of fun and Um, juncos again for the listeners you probably have seen these birds before because they'll frequent feeders 
uh, gray on the back, white on the belt. And also they have a like an orangey bill yep. that really stands out. And what stands out for me the most is when they fly away and they have this white V on the tail. So right. the, the tail sort of... Um, Their outer tail there's, feathers. There's a border of white. And yep. so it's this upside down V that's flying away from you. So the dark tail, white V. Yep. It's really cool. And so what they did was they, you know, they had a few different conditions. Um, they, they set these birds in cold temperatures, which is about 3 degrees Celsius. That's like 37 degrees. And then they had warm temperatures, 24 degrees Celsius which is like 75 degrees Fahrenheit. And then they also did the short days and long days. So short days were eight hours, long days were 16 hours. And so they measured body mass, flight muscle width, maximum thermogenic metabolic rate. That is actually better for improved shivering endurance and also cold tolerance. So shivering is like the primary way that birds are going to heat themselves up in the wintertime. And if you have this increased metabolic rate, you're going to be able to, you know, have a higher cold tolerance. So they uh, measured all these traits before and after these three and six week periods and what they found was what the cold temperatures ended up changing for these birds was that they had a higher maximum thermogenic metabolic rate so in the summertime let's say when it's warmer out they have a maximum metabolic rate they can only produce so much energy and there's there's like a very defined limit but suddenly under enough time like three to six weeks of cold temperatures there's actually a, a change in that so their maximum metabolic rate increases no, and it's a sense. significant increase and this is this is a rate that they could never get to in the summer Summertime. their body would never allow this to happen and then they also found an increase in heart mass in cold areas and so that sort of would make sense with this you know shivering and the pumping of blood and everything else having a larger heart mass is pretty important you'll also see this in black capped chickadees and red knots black capped chickadees is something we see around here all the time but red knots isn't isn't something I don't I think see so. It. I don't think I've ever seen a red but nut. But they're a, a shorebird, right? Yes, yeah. they are. They're maybe so. caladrus or, or one of the know. one of the. Yeah, I think. I'm horrible with shorebirds. If I'm wrong, I'm cutting it out <laughs> so I don't look like a fool. <laughs> and I found a study that said the same thing. They looked at sparrows and they found the kidney and the heart become enlarged in response to cold. And the interesting thing is they found the same thing happen in small rodents. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So in response to the cold, those organs are getting larger. Yeah. You know, I am curious if if there would be any big differences between the families. Because uh, what what is a families passer domesticus? So uh, the house sparrow is a totally different. It's an old That's world. That's a finch. What? That's a finch. Old world sparrow. Yeah. It's no, but a, a house sparrow is not really a, a sparrow. Is it really a finch? It's a finch. It's a weaver finch. Oh, well, yeah. what, what were you calling them? Weaver finch. Oh, weaver finch? Yeah. I think another name for those are old world sparrows. Yeah. I think. Because okay. it's Passeridae. It's a totally different family than our sparrows around here. We're Emberizidae. And one thing I did want to add in is that they did find another change for um, photo period, so the day length. And that was that um, the photo period was the primary driver of changes in both body mass and catabolic enzyme activities. So basically... Give us there's, the basics. There's three different enzymes that they were looking at. So these enzymes, you can measure them. And they're basically indicators of fatty acid oxidation capacity, maximum uh, cellular metabolic intensity, and also fatty transport across a mitochondrial membrane. So all those enzymes are doing, they're just allowing you to use more energy at a quicker rate. And there may be little nuances that are wrong about that, but that's generally <laughs> what these um, catabolic uh, enzymes are doing. So an increase in body mass and an increase in these catabolic enzyme activities, that's going to be really good for migration. So, so okay. I just want to back up a little bit because you're saying as day length increases, photoperiod increases, right. these researchers found that these enzymes are kicking in these catabolic enzymes and they're preparing the birds for... Migration. Migration. Yes. Right. So the cold brings on the heart muscles. It brings up your maximum metabolic, metabolic rate. rate. And then the photo period increases your body mass. Right. And it increases these catabolic enzymes for migration. Right. So but it's great we things. We don't need to worry about that because we're talking about winter. What in surviving winter residents. Well, that's what the cold's for. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying that facetiously because <laughs> I found a study that said cold acclimated birds, activity happens in their pectoral muscles and their pectoral muscles get larger mm -hmm. not in preparation for migration because these are winter resident birds but the study is saying that possibly it's happening because that's preparing them for having to shiver a lot more during the winter time right uh, but my study was much older much older from 1965 mm -hmm. and i had a hard time finding any studies recently 
that talked about this. You know, is that what the pectoral muscles are for? Right. You know, these enlarged pectoral muscles in res winter resident birds. Maybe they've found out in between 1965 and now that no, that's not the case. You can't discount it because, like I was saying, they're two different families: the Emberizidae versus right, the right. Passeridae. So. In this study, my study was focusing on sparrows. Yeah, so um, they're a continent apart. There might be big differences. There might be reasons that a European bird would have that evolutionary history to evolve the larger breast muscles. There might be a reason. And your study was on European birds. No, my study was on the junco. Oh, okay. Yeah, it uh, was on the dark-eyed junco. Uh, you're, wait, I'm sorry. You're talking about the house sparrow, though. No, I just said sparrow. You threw in house sparrow. For Why did reason. I? I don't know. I could have swore you said house sparrow. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I didn't say house sparrow. You I imagined I said house sparrow. Wow. <laughs> I'm living a lie. That's incredible. Um, yeah. If, if, no, wow. it's just, Holy cow. I just said sparrows. I'm not sure what kind of sparrow it was. Maybe uh, they're talking about the house sparrow, uh, which maybe. is not a native sparrow. Yeah. And it's not even a sparrow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that thermogenesis is uh, creating heat. Mm -hmm. And birds, one way they make it through the winter is by shivering a lot. Right. Uh, that creates heat. That's the primary way small birds will make it through. Right. But do you know that there is non-shivering thermogenesis? We talked about it a little bit last month. We did. But we did. it was in mammals. Right. Right. But okay. it's the same, oh, uh, same, same, same mechanism because let's talk about fat. Sure. All right. Yeah. You uh, wanna, are you, it yeah, looks like you're trying to lead let's, me. Let's walk yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Maybe we'll come across a bird or two. Oh, because, hey. What? You just missed a vole. I did? Right right out of this hole. He, ah, nice. I almost crushed it. Yeah. The little, <laughs> little brown vole. It was kind of cool. Humans... Once we're adults, we have a lot of white fat. So you know there's different kinds of fat, right? Yes. So, <laughs> you know, we talked so about it last week. We did? Yeah. No, last episode. Well, well basically last <laughs> yeah, week. Yeah, I know. That's true. We're, we're really rushing this one through. All right. So we have mostly white fat once we're grown up. And that's good for insulation uh, and for retaining body heat. Mm -hmm. That white fat, newborn babies don't have a lot of that. They have almost no white fat, and they're mostly brown fat. Okay, so uh, what people might call brown adipose tissue. Is this where the dark meat and the light meat in turkey comes from? I think so, yeah. Oh. So in brown fat, the fat cells are smaller, and they're loaded with mitochondria, which generate heat by breaking down fatty acids. Yeah, mitochondria, the energy-producing right. organelle of, so the, of the cell. Right? That's thermogenesis, non-shivering thermogenesis. Uh, once newborn babies start eating more, they develop layers of white fat. Uh, and the brown fat goes away. But hibernating animals, like we talked about uh, last episode, yep. and birds, they do have brown fat. Right. So, And I know the mammals, they develop that before winter. So it's correct. not something that they just have all the time. Right. So birds will do that as well. Wow. Uh, they have the brown fat. So when we talk about thermogenesis as a strategy for surviving winter, there's two kinds. There's shivering, but then there's also uh, the brown fat that's using, you know, loaded with mitochondria, that's generating heat that way. So they kind of have these two mechanisms of thermogenesis going on. Nice. Yeah. All right, so birds increase their metabolisms in winter in order to increase their cold tolerance? Yeah. Are you sure? Okay. That's yeah. what we've been saying? Yeah, okay. Well, you'd be wrong. <laughs> no, well... I knew you were going to say that. I know. Yeah, I, I'm being completely unfair, though, because there was a study... They actually sort of looked at more like neotropical species, and they found in the wintertime, their base metabolic rate actually decreases in winter. What? Wait, yeah. Wait, neotropical on their wintering grounds? Yeah. They were looking at areas of the world where mean daily temperatures, when it was cold, was only 14 degrees Celsius. So that's going to be about 57 that's degrees. That's pretty warm. Yeah. And then in the warm parts of the year, there was an average of 77 degrees Fahrenheit, so 25 degrees Celsius. That's not winter time. <laughs> well, they're looking at summer and winter, but in other parts of the world. And they found that there's owl species, there's shrikes, there's sparrow weavers. They looked at all these different species of birds, and they found that uh, their metabolisms in winter were decreasing. So 23%, 30%, 35%, 17%, they're going down. Why? So in the summertime, they're breeding. They need these organs to be taken care of. Certain processes are going on. Yeah, they're excited. <laughs> they're running hotter, you may say, and they need the extra energy in the summer. Where in the winter, since it's sort of mild, you don't need to increase your metabolism. Right. It's only true for us and other, maybe other areas that, you know, these birds need to increase their metabolism to stay warm. Sure. Yeah. And I don't even think you can make 
broad, well, maybe you can, but generalizations about our birds right here. I think right. species by species, there's going to be differences in their strategies. There's going to be differences in what they've evolved to deal with cold temperatures. Right. So we're making some broad generalizations in this episode. True. Yeah. yeah. Which we do every episode. So, so far, just to kind of get us back on track. Mm-hmm. So far, we've talked about two strategies, physical strategies. We have thermogenesis, uh, ways of creating heat. And then we have, we talked about circulation. So let's talk about feathers. Okay. All right, and how feathers change and what these birds do. I'll let you talk about feathers because right. I actually didn't look into feathers. All right, so. Sorry, no, let's go this way. Because right. maybe we'll come across a chickadee. All right. Maybe want to land on my notes. So those feathers do an excellent job of trapping air. Uh, you were talking earlier about how do these birds stay warm in the water. Right. Okay, but the feathers really create such a complete layer of protection. They treat them with oils from a gland on their body near the base of their tail. The uropigial gland, uh, I, th- I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Hey, I've, I've studied my ornithology. <laughs> you know, those birds, we think of them in the water. That water is really staying, for the most part, on the outside of the feathers. And when they're out and about, those feathers do such a great job of trapping air that the air right next to their skin is still pretty warm. Oh, it's like deer fur or deer hair, whatever deer you call it. Or us yeah. putting on a, a down coat. Right. Right? I found some different studies that looked at temperature difference. Okay. So I found one study that said in birds, the air that's next to their skin, even on extremely cold uh, days when temperatures drop below freezing, even near zero, Mm-hmm. that the temperature near their skin is about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Now, most birds are at about 100 degrees, though. Sure. The typical body temperature. But then I found another study that said the difference between outside temperatures and the temperature near their skin, it could be a difference of 70 degrees. Oh, right. So that's, that one seems to make more sense to me because for a bird flying around, if the air next to their skin was 70 degrees... 30 degrees cooler than, you know, their body temperature, that wouldn't seem to be a good thing. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know red poles? Yeah. Common red poles, so... I brought them up in the last study I talked about. Oh, that's right. These are birds, if people don't know, they're about the size of a a sparrow, like a tree sparrow. Uh, But when I used to work at the Nature Center, I used to get, not always, but sometimes I would get people calling and saying, there's a bird at my bird feeder, and it looks like it's bleeding. Oh. And I would ask them to describe it, and I'd usually say, oh... You probably have a red pole, yeah, because they're uh, kind of a, most of their body's kind of drab colored, but on their forehead, and then kind of going down under their beak, there's red. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar with the bird, it can look like the bird is injured. Right, right. Yeah. Like it was attacked by a hawk. Right. And got away. Um, in these red poles, they're more of a northern bird, but they will come down into our area and areas even further south into the southern states during winter. Uh, when food is scarce on mm. their normal home territory. So they, these are called eruptions. But uh, red poles during the wintertime, if you compare a red pole in July to a red pole now, their feather weight is going to be 30% heavier. Oh. So the oh. feathers that they put on for the winter months are going to be a lot heavier. The research shows the feathers are denser. Oh, wow. Uh, so they're just better at insulation. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so uh, there was a study in 2014 from Behavioral Ecology. Okay. Um, and it was pretty interesting. They were looking at the thermal benefits from forging in direct sunlight, but that was weighed against the increases of the risk of a predator attack. Okay. Is so, this the one you were telling me about with the, where they face? Yes. Okay. With yesterday. This so, is a good one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, what they were looking at was they are looking at uh, these mixed flocks, it was mostly juncos and American tree sparrows, but there was also some like cardinals, song sparrows, white-throated sparrows, swamp sparrows, you know, field sparrows, stuff we see around here. And what they saw was that the vast majority of the time, you're going to have these flocks of birds hanging out in shade, even on very, very cold days. And this was something that you were saying, they'll even do this when midday air temperatures are as much as 30 degrees Celsius or 86 degrees Fahrenheit below their thermo-neutral zone, okay. which could be like negative 12 degrees Celsius. Oh, okay. Right, so... so Really cold days. Yeah, They're very, still going to stick to the days. shade. Yeah, so, so that negative degrees Celsius doesn't come out of nowhere. Specifically, I guess, with dark-eyed juncos, for example, their lower critical temperature, the one that they really shouldn't go below is 22 and a half degrees Celsius or, you know, 72.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and like you were saying, that layer underneath the feathers is about 70 degrees. Yeah. You know, that's, so they really shouldn't be dropping below that. 
regardless, like I just said, they're going in midday temperatures, 86 degrees Fahrenheit below what they should be. And that's the outside temperature. The outside temperature. And of course, what Bill was saying, the feathers are really going to help them with that. So this was an interesting thing. So let's say if you're thinking of random, what would you expect if these birds were randomly landing on a patch of grass? Uh Let's say this patch of grass had 37% shade. If the birds are just randomly landing on this lawn, how many of the birds, would you say percentage-wise, are going to land in the shade if they don't care, if they're just landing randomly? 30%. Well, 37%. If these birds are completely randomizing where they're landing, they should be 37% in the shade and 63% in the sun. And what they found was in 87% of the observations, greater than 37% were always landing in the shade. So they were always getting higher than expected in the shade. Almost all the time, most of the birds landed in the shade. Right. Yeah. In terms of the number of flocks of birds that they used, they, they had over 550 flocks that they used, and they had wow. 18 observation sessions. There's a more than expected number of birds hanging out in the shade than in the sun. And on those under those extremely cold conditions. Even under the extremely yeah. cold conditions. Though they did find that under the coldest conditions, like as the conditions got colder and colder the birds would actually more or less be forced into the sun. So they're more likely, this is like life and death. They have to use the sun to help warm themselves up a little bit. But in general, unless they're in these super, super extreme conditions, they're going to be hanging out in the shade, even though that's not really going to be helping them in terms of staying warm. But it's going to help them avoid predation. Right. Because if you're out in the sun, chances are a predator is going to see you and pick you off at least the chances are better the areas that you're more likely to find these birds in winter especially under these you know extremely cold conditions is uh, an area with like a mosaic of sun and shade so they can hang out in the shade but also you know every now and then move into the sun during the winter you're usually not going to see birds hanging out in huge open areas at least in our neck of the woods except for yesterday when we found those horned larks that was the exception though yeah Yeah. (laughs) right right (laughs) most of the fields we were driving by were empty Yes, that's true. Though I do want to say something about predation. There was a 2003 study in in the journal Condor, and it was looking at Cooper's hawks, and they're using an urban study area. Cooper's hawks are going to go after mammals in the summer, but, you know, when there's a snowpack down, the mice and everything are a little bit harder to find, you're going to have them switching to birds more. European starlings, morning doves, rock doves, and and whatnot. In these studies, they knew what the prey species was 80% of the time. They found that these Cooper's hawks had a 20% success rate. Going um, after prey. Going after prey, yeah. Yeah, That's that's pretty good success rate. European starlings made up over half of their diet, and then about a quarter of the diet... Yeah. (laughs) A quarter of the diet was morning doves, and then about 20% of the diet was, uh, like, rock doves. And that made up about 95% of the prey that was attacked and 91% of what ended up making up their diet. Now, yeah, I would ahead. be interested to, to find out if that holds true for sharp-shinned hawks as well. And this study did bring up sharp-shinned hawks, uh-huh. and generally sharp-shinned hawks do not hang out in the exact same areas no, as Cooper no. hawks right. because Cooper's hawks will keep them out in right. a sense. Because they're slightly larger. Right. Yeah. One it, thing that was really interesting, even though there was a very high number of house sparrows, they were rarely attacked. So, um, yeah, exactly. I think there were 13% of the overall population, but out of all the attacks, only one house sparrow was attacked once, and it got away. Yeah, but they're they're also a lot smaller than morning doves, starlings, and and rock pigeons. Right, and it was kind of interesting. Oh, I hear a nuthatch. Oh, yeah, nuthatch. If you folks can hear it, it's that hank. Oh, we have cardinals, too. So this study also looked at something called open attacks versus surprise attacks. And what they saw was that these open attacks, the birds were just coming head on. You know, the flock could see them coming. And these attacks were 7% successful. Not very good, though they did them almost exactly half the time. And the surprise attacks were 30% successful, way higher than 7%. But even though the surprise attacks were more successful, they didn't happen more often. Yeah, why wouldn't they? They actually happened slightly less often. (laughs) Why wouldn't the birds do those? What's What's... The problem with those kind of attacks. Maybe you have to keep surprise attacks not more common because maybe then they'll then get it won't used be a to surprise them. anymore. <laughs> yeah, I guess they they didn't really go into this in the paper, but that's something I was thinking of. You know, when you look at how many European starlings, you know, are abundant. Yeah, it kind of matches almost perfectly with the amount that they're attacked. The more abundant, so they're more abundant and they're attacked pretty much at the same rate as their abundance. Okay. So morning doves, their abundance in the environment only makes up 3% of the birds in general. 
So they're only 3% of the population. But they're attacked 24% of the time. But you were just saying that starlings, their abundance matched up with how often they were attacked. Yeah, so they're attacked about 50% of the time. Yeah. They make up about 50% of the birds, the birds in that area. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like the Cooper's hawks are going out of their way for starlings. Just so happens that there's so many starlings, they're just going to eat the starlings. So they really like morning doves? The morning doves only make up 3% of the birds in the area, but the birds go after them 24% of the time. But again, look at house sparrows, they make up 13% of all the birds in the area, but less than 1% is attacked. Maybe because... That means smaller. they're avoiding them. Right, so they're if not going for them. Yeah, okay. and it would seem like for starlings, they're not going after or avoiding them, they're just eating them, you know, there, sort of well, eat, somewhat yeah. randomly. Yeah. Morning doves, they're going out of their way to eat, and then house sparrows, they're going out of their way to avoid. To yeah. This may have been because rock doves are such good flyers. The surprise attacks were way more common. They're not going to get these things unless they do a surprise, surprise attack. attack. So there was a strange number of surprise attacks for these rock doves. Okay. Because they have these falcate wings, you know, they're very quick oh, flyers. Yeah, yeah and that, that was pretty much it. But I'm glad you, you brought this up, predation and um, flightability and all that, because that actually leads into the, the fourth adaptation. Okay. Uh, so we talked about how birds use thermogenesis, uh, their feathers, uh, they may have different types of feathers during the wintertime and the insulative properties. Uh, and then the other one was circulation. Talk oh, right, circulation. Yeah, circulation. Yeah. So the last one, let's talk about the last physical strategy for surviving the wintertime is torpor. Right, so we this, brought this up last episode a little bit. This links directly with what we were talking about last time. Very often it's referred to as daily torpor. As it plays out, birds go into nightly torpor more often. So this is short-term, low-grade hibernation. Uh, and think of a chickadee at night, it will typically go into this torpor state that lasts a few hours. Its temperature will drop uh, 10 to 12 degrees Celsius. So in Fahrenheit, that's about 15 to 20 degrees. And just by this slight temperature drop, it can save up to 60% of the energy it might use in a given night. And that is what it's all about during the winter time, is trying to balance your fat reserves, how much energy you're gonna use, especially during the night. Their fat reserves, those reflect a trade-off between starvation and predation, right? Right. So let me ask you, I know you know the answer to this, but for the benefit of people listening, <laughs> if you were a bird during the winter time, would you want to get as fat as possible? Yeah, that sounds so good. <laughs> but you wouldn't. Why? Because there's a trade-off between putting on fat and being able to avoid predators, at least exactly. from a study from 2000 that, that I have. But I'll, I'll let you go with yours, and then I'll jump in with mine. Yeah, because, I mean, that's basically it. You know, I would always think that before doing the research for this is birds are just trying to find as much food as possible. And mm -hmm. since food is scarce, they can't. There's, there's a, a limiting factor there. But, no, even if a bird is allowed to eat as much as it can during the wintertime, uh, it's not going to get extremely fat. It's not going to build up huge fat reserves because that right. reduces its mobility. Mm -hmm. So it's a trade-off. You don't want to have too little fat and be extremely mobile because then you're not going to be able to make it through the, the night. You're going to starve. Right. Uh, but you also don't want to eat too much and get too fat because then you're going to not be able to avoid predators effectively. And it's important to say that these fat stores, it's daily. So you're putting right. out a certain amount of fat per day and you're burning it almost entirely almost all of it yeah that's right and this is daily so imagine in one day you get really fat and then overnight <laughs> you lose it all right and this is what these birds are going through their bodies are built to do this they they put on a lot of fat and they just burn it up here's a little chickadee right here oh hey maybe he'll <laughs> land on my notes <laughs> now i do have some seed do you want to see if they'll land in my hand oh i don't know i don't know if he wants to you know during the winter time they really are living right on the edge of survival um, you have to have just enough fat reserves usually to make it through the night and a lot of birds don't make it through the night they're getting more bold they're getting right, so less we have, shy we have some chickadees flying around here right now you know though i, I don't think talking should be a problem so i'm going to put the close. mic a little bit closer to myself yeah. and uh, i'm just going to talk about this this interesting study that i found and i'm just i'm even going to say the title because i thought it was cool it was in behavioral ecology from 2000 it's why do hoarding birds gain fat in winter the wrong way wrong. suggestions from a dynamic model so, uh, you know what, this author's kind of being facetious in a sense. He's not being completely serious because the birds are putting on fat in the wrong way based on the model that was assumed. Okay. So <laughs> the model that was assumed was that, you know, small birds need to be fat in order to avoid starvation and they need to be lean and agile to escape their predators. 
So there's this cost benefit again to carrying fat reserves versus the predators. And they really need to gain enough fat to survive the night, which you were just talking about. So there was a prediction that this model had made. If you're a bird that isn't a hoarder, you're going to fatten up early in the day because, you know, you have unpredictable food sources. You don't know if you're going to be able to eat later. As soon as the day starts, you go nuts and you start, you try to eat as much as you can. So that's going to be the maximum amount of food that's eaten. But the food hoarders, they don't really need to carry around all this excessive fat during the day because they they just have stored food. Yeah, they have stored food. Their food is very predictable. They have predictable food sources. So their prediction would be that the food hoarders would gain fat later in the day. So they could put on late day fat and then just make it through the night because they have this predictable food. What they found was the exact opposite. So they found that hoarders gained the most fat in the morning, and they actually gained more fat than non-hoarders. Do they hypothesize why? Oh, yeah. So the model needed to change, right? So what they decided to change was that fat storage is not detrimental up until a certain point. So you You can put put on on fat. You can put on a little weight. Yeah, you can put on a little weight. But then you had to stop at a certain point. At a certain point, it became detrimental. It was bad. You, you were more likely to be, you know, attacked or something. And so what they found was that the hoarders would gain a lot of fat in the morning. They would lose that fat a little bit throughout the day. So maybe the, the mid-morning period, they wouldn't really be feeding too much because they had just eaten a whole bunch. Um, but they're burning through this fat. And then later on, after their fat levels have dropped a little bit, they'll go out and they'll do their hoarding. And then they'll actually put more fat on in the early afternoon right before going in yeah so they put the highest amount on in the morning they drop in the mid-morning where they're actually hoarding and collecting more stuff and then they put on a little bit more before they go to bed like why don't they just wait until the end of the day to have to go through the trouble of putting on the fat oh i think it's because if conditions are good to just eat wild food that's the most beneficial thing to do okay because you can always save your stored food later okay the hoarders gain the most fat in the morning they gain fat the least in the midday while they're collecting food, and then increases again in the afternoon while they're eating their cash. Okay. And then the non-hoarders gain the most fat in the morning, but they're not gaining as much as the hoarders, which is that interesting. And then it's, it just drops off as the day goes. So they're just gaining less and less fat up until they are surviving the night. These birds could be caching. Like, this study is suggesting that the birds don't just cache before the winter comes along. They're caching during the winter, right. too. If they're just going to continually cache, eat in the morning, cash when it's safe to do so when your fats burn a little bit and then eat your cash at night too i would think though that that birds that don't have a cash would be putting on more fat in the morning you know what i mean because yeah. the, the birds that have a cash i would almost be thinking they would again i'm anthropomorphizing right. here but they would think oh i have food i don't need to work that hard to build up fat right now because i know i have a cash right i do want to say something though and this is specifically about caching so again in the journal the condor in 1989 they had this quantified these cache site selections for nuthatches tip mice and chickadees um, so they use the black capped and the carolina chickadee uh-huh. and they actually found some sort of interesting things and i i actually had no idea when i was thinking of caching i was thinking of like hiding seeds and stuff in little holes That's not exactly true at all. What they found for the chickadees is that they don't really care if their cache is protected from snow or ice. They just want it to be protected from potential cache robbers. So where are they going to do it? Well, I'll get to that. So (laughs) chickadees and tip mice, they place the seeds on small branches and twigs. They just put it on a branch? Yeah. This study, they used seeds. Like they had, they were using certain seeds in the study and they're watching what these birds are doing with them. And... (laughs) Weird, right? So they're just putting them on just surfaces. So how is that protecting it from other birds? <laughs> I don't know. It's very weird. And so it's almost like they can't really rely on their caches. <laughs> so the nuthatches, they stored seeds in a different way. They would store these seeds far under bark or deep in the furrows of bark. Or they would cover their caches with bark or other material. They would either be hiding it or they would do some sort of cryptic so thing. nuthatches are either smarter or more paranoid. Right, but the differences in these caching techniques... Nuthatch. Oh, nice. Oh, chickadees and nuthatches. Right, right, two right. birds in the stomach I'm talking about. So if, if no one knows what a nuthatch looks like, or this is a white-breasted nuthatch. Sitta right. uh, canadensis, I think. That I could be right. wrong. It's got like what... It almost looks like a black mohawk, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, they're really cool-looking bird. They're kind of like a bluish-gray. They have white bellies. They have this black little mohawk. I say mohawk, but it's not raised at all. Right. It's just... It's flat up against their head. Yeah. Um, it's Yeah, it's a pretty cool, let's say a, a narrow black cap, I and guess, long, that sort of almost goes down to the nape of their neck. And a long, thin black beak. And a long, thin black beak, which I'm going to get into. So the differences 
in these caching strategies may be due to these morphological differences. So the bill advantage goes to the cidids, the nut hatches, and so they have these sort of longer bills, so they can jam stuff into, uh, you know, into bark crevices. Whereas you're looking at the chickadees right now, how big would you say their beaks look? Oh, jeez, tiny little like that couldn't put anything under Less bark. Less than a centimeter. Yeah, they're yeah. the tiniest little things. But they have these interesting legs, and their and their legs, like the way that they're mechanically built, they can get to these really thin little ledges a lot easier. So I guess a nuthatch isn't really going to be able to land on one of these really, really little, thin, light little twigs. They prefer to be on bark. Yeah. yeah. They, so the chickadees are going to stick to branches, and the nuthatches are really going to stick to the bark. It's, it's these like little morphological things, just where these birds are going to be more likely to appear. Uh, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Huh. I mean, especially we just got surrounded by almost all the birds in the study, <laughs> at two out of three of them at least. So I'm just curious, how do you feel about feeding birds out of the hand? Cause oh, I don't do it. You don't do it. No. Why not? Oh, the, I, you know what? I, I guess there's no reason other than they'll land on your hand without any feed at all. Because uh, at least at Tift, the birds are very friendly. Mm-hmm. And so I'll just put my hand out and they'll just land on my hand. Right. They I, say not to, everyone does it, but you know, I'm getting the same feeling out of them landing on my hand than someone who's feeding them. And they, they can get food everywhere, you know? They're... And I, I just bring it up because right. a lot of people don't know that there is some debate about it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think feeding a bird out of the hand, a wild bird, is you know, it's a wonderful experience. Oh, it's great. It, it's a chance to, to experience something wild much, much closer in a much more personal way than you normally would. Mm-hmm. But there is a, a detrimental side to that as well. Yes. You're acclimating wildlife that should be wild, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, and getting them used to people, which which can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. I would say much more for the animal than for the person. I'm not worried about a chicken <laughs> hurting it. But. Right. What's what is this? Some flocks of birds flying around here. Yeah. Yeah. We have oh, some. they're sparrows. But what yeah. are they? Tree? Tree sparrows? American tree sparrows? I had I had. So a we have a flock of uh, sparrow-sized birds flying in the the underbrush nearby, but most of them are out of eyesight right now. Oh oh oh! One just flew oh. in. Yep. Their little brown bodies match with the little brown sticks. It's a tree sparrow. Nice. So I just got a good view. The tree sparrows, they have the striping pattern. They have like um, a reddish brown on the top of their head as well. Yeah, but the great field mark for them is they have a relatively white breast with a black dot right in the middle of the breast. So yeah. That's a good uh, winter field mark for the American tree sparrow. Okay, so you were talking about feeding birds. And let me start with the positive survey because I only have one. Okay. Because I think you said you had some negative things, right? I was reading a study this morning. I didn't write it down, but I'll I'll try to remember it. But go ahead. Sure. Okay, so there was a study that was in 2008. It was in biology letters. They were studying blue tits. So it's a relative of our titmouse and also the chickadees. Yeah, it's a European bird. So what they did was they had a supplementary food, peanuts specifically, that's what they use. And they found that increasing the food availability during the winter can be carried over to the breeding season. Even when they stop feeding them six weeks before the breeding season starts. Okay. They were comparing areas where they were doing this supplementary feeding versus areas where they weren't doing it. And they found that the birds within these areas that they were feeding them peanuts, they were finding that they were breeding earlier. Yes. And... I remember that. The number of chicks that fledged successfully also increased in these areas. Oh. Okay. And comparing that to the controls where they weren't doing any feeding, you know, breeding was later and they had less chicks um, successfully fledge. Okay. So this is the positive study. All right. So, uh, yeah. So I, I do have to say that what I read this morning was, was quick. I didn't know if we were going to be talking about this today. And it was an article referencing studies. So I don't, I don't have the direct data sure. uh, on the, the tip of my mental fingers. But the negatives were that they found in some studies that when you feed birds, it's possible that birds will settle in an area that is not extremely suitable habitat for them. They have the feeder there, so they settle in that area, but if the feeding stops, well, now they're in this habitat that is not an extremely suitable habitat. Also, the article made reference to the exact opposite of what you just said. Sure. That birds that were using feeders, it's possible that they would breed earlier, and then they would be out of sync with plants or insects that they were relying on to feed their young. Wow. And that their brood sizes would be smaller. Interesting, because I even said in my study that they stopped feeding them six months before breeding. Right. Because they can't go six weeks without food. But also, you know, bird feeders can be a vector for disease. 
That's true. Okay. Well, that's why you have to take responsibility when you're feeding your birds. You have to make sure that they're clean. That right. you know that. And I don't want yeah. I don't want people to think that we're saying feeding birds is necessarily bad. No. Uh, let me ask you a question. What percentage of their diet do you think most birds take from feeders? You know, this was also something that I was thinking about, and yeah. I don't know. Um, maybe thirty or so, thirty okay. and a half. So it's a myth that birds will become dependent on feeders. And that if you feed birds through the warm months of the year or in the fall, that you have to continue feeding into the wintertime. Mm-hmm. It's not true because the majority of studies out there find that birds take about 25% of oh. their diet from feeders. Huh? So three quarters of what they're eating is coming from wild sources. Apparently, birds know better than to rely on us for their food. Yeah. Uh, now, the catch to that is if you are feeding birds and the, wind, the weather suddenly turns bad, you should keep feeding the birds because in that instance, the weather's bad and the birds are staying put and they cannot range far and wide to find food. Over the course of that severe weather, they may be relying much heavier on your feeder, right. uh, which is a tough thing because a lot of people, when the weather turns really bad, maybe you get feet of snow, you're going to say, oh, do I want to go out and fill the bird feeder? Oh, I really don't want right, to. Right, right. You know, but you're so, the one who put it out there. you got to take responsibility <laughs> for it. We're feeding birds for ourselves, for our enjoyment. Right. It doesn't seem to be benefiting the birds in, in any extreme ways and maybe detrimental to them. Yeah. So it's definitely something that I want to look into more, and I'm going to be looking at the research that comes out because right. I want to know more about it. But here's something interesting. So we're talking about uh, bird feeding in terms of people, right? Yeah. So, um, but here's an interesting study that I, I mentioned to you the other day when we were doing our uh, Christmas bird yeah. count. There was this study in 2003 from the Wildlife Society Bulletin. What they were talking about in this was that can you use bird feeders as a type of... Pest control. Pest control, oh, yeah. Oh, you... Yeah. Right, right. Steve so mentioned what, this to me yesterday. That's why I, I knew <laughs> yeah. how to end his sentence. There. What they're specifically looking at is they're trying to simulate bark-dwelling arthropods. During the winter, there's a lot of arthropods that have to overwinter in and on bark. And a lot of these will eventually become pests in the spring. So and, insect larvae overwintering in little cracks in yeah, bark. Yeah, so they're just right on the trees. You yeah. could, we could probably actually go find one. Yeah. What they did was they wanted to see if, if in the presence of a bird feeder if the trees around that bird feeder would have a higher rate of birds gleaning insects off. So what they did was they drilled little two and a half centimeter holes into these trees. They did a certain number per tree and they did it 20 meters out in each cardinal direction from these bird feeders. And what they found was that in the areas with bird feeders, there was a significant increase in the number of mealworms that they put inside these holes that were eaten. So around the feeders, more mealworms were eaten. Out of the 64 that they put into these trees, with the feeders, 63 out of 64 were eaten in one area, and then 57 out of 64 were eaten in another area. And then in the controls where there was no feeders, 57 and 44 eaten. The birds are loitering around the the feeders and probably finding more insects right and it's and so what would you expect would you expect that the number of mealworms would you know that were eaten would be greater closer to the bird feeders i would think so yeah but they weren't (laughs) (laughs) in fact uh, there was no difference so at, at each marker all the way out to 20 meters no difference these are forests just like what we have around here there were sugar maple red maple white ash aspen paper birch balsam fir they're just you know forests that we're used to here in the northeast and in western new york and the bird species that they were looking at again exactly what we're seeing here uh hairy woodpeckers downy woodpeckers black cap chickadees the white breasted nuthatch that we just saw red breasted nuthatches american goldfinches and one thing that they did bring up in this study was that the brown creepers they're very big into gleaning insects off of the trunks of these trees and that's actually where you see the creepers is going up and down these these trees they're sort of creeping <laughs> up and down them and what they were wondering is that if we're adding these bird feeders to these areas that we want pest control in are we going to be declining the success rate of, of brown creepers in terms of have all these other birds yeah. horning in on you know the right. insects they normally eat right so at yeah. least in these areas where we put the bird feeders are we going to do something detrimental to the creepers right. because they don't feed at the feeders sure. and so they're not really going to have an advantage from this yeah, but they okay. they still hang out in these flocks and that's the problem if this was an effective way of controlling pests would the benefit of not having to use pesticides to control insects would that outweigh the detriment to the, the brown creepers? I, I don't know. I'm just postulating what yeah. may happen. We, we can All right. So we've talked about uh, bird feeding. We've talked about the physical adaptations uh, of resident birds in the wintertime. So let's talk about, I just have a couple behavioral adaptations. Sure. So uh, one thing that birds do to 
make it through winter nights is they will roost together, communal roosting. Mm -hmm. okay, so that's when birds huddle together to keep warm. Uh, they can do this on a branch or they can do it in a cavity. Uh, and this is something you can actually encourage, uh, anybody can encourage in their yard by putting up roosting boxes. Oh, cool. If you have nesting boxes, clean them out because then they be can become roosting boxes where birds can either roost by themselves or together communally. There are some studies out there. I found one from 1999, again in the condor that you mentioned, that journal. This looked at mountain chickadees and juniper titmice. And they said that when they were communally nesting in a cavity, the temperature was 20 degrees higher than the outside temperature. And their energy savings were anywhere between 25 and 35 percent. Hmm. So it, it's extremely beneficial to communally nest. Uh, they did find that they would usually only communally nest when weather turned worse than usual. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't know why. The study didn't seem to be sure why they made that shift. Right. Is there some disadvantage to nesting communally uh, when the weather's not that bad? And then once the temperature drops, they say, oh, well, I'm going to have to deal with this. Yeah. They just don't like living together. I don't know. They're huddled together the whole time. Oh, I hate you. I hate you. Oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> Little chickadees. I'm trying to think of cavity nesters. Chickadees are cavity nesters. Chickadees. Bluebirds do it a lot. Bluebirds, or, yeah. They came, I should say they came up a lot uh, in reference to communal nesting. Sure. Chickadee. Can't, yeah. That bastard. There he is. You know what? <laughs> so there's two chickadees. There we go. Right, right. Are they going to land on the mic? <laughs> they did that'd be so cool. So they're waiting for food right now that is what they're doing. So the chickadee's coming in. Now see he's going for the ground because I spilled some seed on the ground. Yep. He Beautiful. landed on my hand though. Yeah. He did. Oh, I love chickadees. They're fun. <laughs> they're fun. I like chickadees. Yeah. People worry about suffocation. Suffocation? Yeah like if all these birds are piled up into this roosting box right or, or whatever they could be in a tree hole a tree cavity there have been instances where at the bottom of a pile you'll find a bird or two dead oh but when you go into the research the research seems to indicate it's not because of suffocation those are birds that starve to death oh those are birds that died because they didn't have the fat reserves in place and the night was just too hard for them. if it's something people are concerned about and they're setting up roosting boxes uh, most of the plans that are out there have holes drilled in the bottom. Oh. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be playing out that birds are, are suffocating. Mm -hmm. uh, right. I like that huddling thing because we talked about that with mammals. So uh, bluebirds will do it and robins will do it as well. That's that's another right. species I Who found. Who cares about robins, the <laughs> migrating turd? I have no idea what turdus means. Yeah, so that's for the listeners. Turdus migratorius, I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I know turdus is the genus name. <laughs> migrating turd. They're a thrush. <laughs> All right, so the other behavioral, <laughs> besides roosting, the diet can often shift. I didn't uh, delve into a lot of research from this, but they need that fat-rich food during the winter time. That's what yeah. they'll prefer. Uh, but one interesting thing I found, those red poles we were talking about, did you know they have a throat pouch? No. So they have a throat pouch in their esophagus that they can store up to two grams of seed in. Like a freaking chipmunk. <laughs> and they'll find Holy a lot cow. of them will go to their roosting spot for the night and then they'll eat that food in a safe spot. Wow. So uh, two grams of seed in that it's pouch. It's like caching. Yeah. <laughs> They're caching in their throat. <laughs> wow. From filling up that pouch once, they can get a quarter of their energy needs for the day. Wow. Yeah. The last thing is uh, birds will roost in tunnels. Oh. So again, about red poles. I mm -hmm. didn't know this. They will make tunnels in the snow. To roost overnight. The, the tunnels can be a foot long. Subnivian. Yeah. That's well, cool. I don't think they go that deep. Oh, no? no? No. They're going into the snow, and it can be about four inches, up to four inches deep, uh, but a foot long. Cool. So uh, that That's ins really cool. insulating snow around them will keep them warm. But you know, uh, I think you know about the bird we have around here, the game bird, that oh, tunnels the, into the snow. Which which one? The grouse? Or yeah, the, yeah. The rough grouse. I've never personally experienced that story where... You're like, oh, I went to step down, and the bird just I've never right had in one front of me. Come from under my feet. Yeah. So for the people listening, we're talking about a rough grouse, also called a partridge. Yep. And uh, it's a game bird around here that, well, one of its uh, strategies for for dealing with predators or whatever is, it will wait until um, a threat is very close by, and then just burst out from wherever it's hiding. 
uh, yeah. in a flurry of, of wings and, and noise. It's the weirdest survival strategy, like how many people have dropped dead <laughs> right next to partridges? There's a study. Yeah. <laughs> Incidences of cardiac events leading to uh, grouse flushing. This is awkward to bring up at the end of the episode, more or less, but you're dressed as a giant partridge right now. You showed up today dressed in a big partridge costume. I know I no one can actually see. Like, every episode, Bill has been, and I, I've totally failed to mention this the whole time, <laughs> But, like, for the bear episode, Bill was in a bear costume. Bear but, costume. like, one of those humanoid bear costumes where it just had the extra large head and just regular people, arms and legs. Yeah. Um, I just do it for myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least he tried. Yeah. It's just a weird thing. Maybe from now on I'll explain what Bill's wearing <laughs> at the start of the episode instead of the end. No but, pictures, though. Yeah. <laughs> no pictures. <laughs> no pictures. Well, you know, we'll just... Uh, vivid descriptions. All right. So, <laughs> that's, that is everything I have. Do uh, you have anything else? Um, I don't really think I have anything else. Okay. Should we do a recap? Sure. So, uh, when it comes to birds that stick around for the wintertime, birds that do not migrate, right? They have their uh, the physical adaptations, the the circulation. Yep. They have the feathers. Mm-hmm. They the have increased metabolism, which which helps them with shivering and uh, cold tolerance, thermogenesis. thermogenesis yeah. yeah. Uh, and then they also can go into torpor, right? Uh, dropping their metabolic rate slightly overnight, and then. As far as the behavioral, we also talked about roosting, communal roosting. Yep. Uh, Grouping together even though they hate each other. Yep, yep. And then talking about diet, switching up their diet. Birds have some adaptations like the red pole yep. for carrying food around. Right. There's other ones that I'm sure that we have not touched on. Yeah. Uh, that is what our research revealed for us, but mm-hmm. there you go. All so right. I think we should thank everybody for the likes on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Please tell your friends. And uh, if you can leave a review on iTunes, yep. that would be great. And please, folks, uh, send ideas for future episodes. Send criticisms if there's something that you feel we should be doing to improve the episodes. We want to hear. Oh, of course. Right? We love compliments, but criticism yeah. helps us improve the episodes. Right. And do you think we should give a shout-out to uh, Sarah's new Facebook page? Strange Bird? Yeah. 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 A great, great page. Actually, recently surpassed us. Oh, come on. She started it a few months after we started, yeah. or at least a month and a half after. She just started with, within I know. Recently. She's already at, like, 300 people that oh, like man. her page. She should be giving us a shout-out, really. True. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, check, check out her page, Strange, Strange Bird, Bird, on Facebook. All right. So, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.